As we come down, uh, I'm going to invite Russ Preston up. Russ is one of our elders. He's a former pastor as well. It's great to have him here. This is actually week five of Pastor Aaron's sabbatical. He and Maggie have been out and about and at home and doing various things, I think, and, and I know it's been refreshing for them. So we're grateful for Adam for the last four weeks of, of giving the message and now for Russ Preston starting a series of elders who will be here the next uh, three weeks past this. So, Russ, take it away. Thanks, Russ. <clears throat> we are free in Christ. Ever stop to think about what that means? Doesn't mean we can do anything in the world. What it really especially means is we are free with regards to our salvation. We don't have to earn it. Nothing I can do, nothing I ever want to do will ever help me be saved. Only the work Jesus Christ did on the cross has anything at all to do with me being saved for eternity with Him. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 23, we hear these words. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by sensuous, his sensuous mind not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that are all perishing as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Again, Colossians 2, 16-23. Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, we hear from you. I pray that nothing I do or say personally will interfere with that and that your Holy Spirit communicates to your spirit within each person in the body. Thank you for your presence and for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I have to ask you, did you notice my uh, outfit this morning? My shirt especially. Uh, Adam, stand up. This is in honor of Adam Johns. His last Sunday, I wanted to make sure he felt especially recognized. I'm also using it for another reason. It illustrates my sermon this morning, freedom. You know, you can wear anything in church. You know, when I grew up in Alabama and Georgia, that was not the case. Uh, If you lived there, you wore a suit to church. I tell you what, if you're a preacher, you did not wear a flowered shirt with no tie You didn't wear sandals, even though Jesus did. You certainly wouldn't wear shorts the way uh, Aaron is wearing this morning. I thought about that, but I just couldn't quite do that. Couldn't go there. I'm not that free yet. (laughs) But we are truly free in Christ. By the way, my glasses give me another kind of freedom. 
These glasses are special glasses that my children gave me recently for Father's Day. Uh, I'm colorblind, but these glasses help me see color. So y'all are in color this morning. Hope you're happy about that. But uh, they're also dark glasses, so I'm not going to wear them to preach. As Adam told us several weeks ago, Paul did not start the church at Colossae. He was well aware of it. He knew about it. And, uh, and he also realized that they were being misled by false teachers. So he wrote the letter of Colossians that we are studying today. In the passage that we are specifically looking at this morning is a focus on the danger of listening to anyone who would expand or add to the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again. The teachings that they were teaching at that time were in the form of adding things to, the more, to be more spiritual. They were being taught that unless they did these certain things, they didn't act like the people who were teaching, they were not really good Christians. How many of you have ever read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? If you haven't, you need to. It's an allegory of the Christian life. As a matter of fact, uh, it teaches, or it doesn't teach, it's a story about a man by the name of Christian, of all things. And he, uh, he leaves his home, the city of destruction, the world of unbelief, and the book is his pilgrimage as he goes from there throughout his life of becoming more and more in Christ to the point where he reaches the city, uh, or rather the celestial city, heaven. So that's the book. Pilgrim's Progress. I really recommend that you read it. Uh, if you do, you'll find that he goes through many perils. The first person that he encounters is a man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man is telling him how to live the Christian life. So he tells him all kinds of things that he ought to do. And Christian listens to him. And he does the things that Mr. Worldly Wise Man tells him to do. And when he does that, he finds himself in terrible trouble. Banyan uh, responds to that or answers that with these words in the book. When Christians unto carnal men give ear, out of their way they go and pay for it dear. For master worldly wise men can but show a saint the way to bondage and to woe. Now you might think that's impossibly difficult to read. Trust me, the book is. It's written in Old English. It was written in 1678. I still recommend that you read it. If you read it in that translation, in the original, you'll gradually get used to it, and it'll make sense. If you don't want to do that, it's been translated to 200 different languages, including modern, current English. Or if you really don't want to do that even, get the DVD. It's even, it's even easier to understand. So I recommend highly that you read or listen to or watch Pilgrim's Progress. It's a great book. But the overall theme today's message found in Colossians 2, 16-23 is simply, we are truly free in Christ Jesus. Since the new teaching that they were hearing in the Colossian church was one of ascetic discipline which combined food restrictions and calorie regulations with a form of angel worship, Paul warns the Colossians of a necessity of guarding against these particular kinds of, of uh, conflicts or additions to the word that they had received regarding Jesus. 
The first point is this. They and we have freedom with respect to food and festivities, festivals. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Colossian Christians were new in their belief, and because they were new, they were, uh, at this time, they were, it was easier for them to be misled by people who were trying to tell them what they ought to be doing. Some people came along, the Gnostics came along, and uh, told them they were inferior in their, in their belief because they didn't follow certain practices that the Gnostics practiced regarding what they ate, what they drank, and how they observed festivals and, uh, and uh, the Sabbath and some other things. So in response to Paul is telling them, don't listen. Don't listen to these teachings. They're wrong. They're wrong and misplaced the emphasis from a personal relationship to Jesus Christ to one of concern with rules and rituals. Don't let anyone tell you you're not a good Christian if you don't do what they do to be like Christ. There are a lot of restrictions within Judaism before Christ came along and changed things and made it clear that we didn't have to do all that. Matter of fact, there were a lot of things in the Old Testament that were not only valid but essential. They had uh, certainly the sacrifices and they had food laws back then, things that they had to do and ought to do. When Christ came, He fulfilled all of those laws, all the Old Testament, and certainly all the things that are being added to it by the Jew, by the the, uh, the Jews, as well as these Gnostics that came along later. All that was superficial and was not necessary and was not part of the message from Jesus Christ. We're free from all of that. These were all just a shadow of what was to come with Jesus Christ. The Gnostic teachings apparently involve such things as a renunciation of meat and wine and a lot of things that were a lot like the Nazarite vow that was also happening, uh, which is, that was valid, that was good, but only in certain contexts. It certainly wasn't what you ought to do to be a Christian. It wasn't what ought to be happening within the church uh, as a whole. So the, the principles that Paul is teaching is that Christians are liberated and liberal and free from all those kinds of teachings in all those matters. And the spirit of his master, that is Jesus Christ, who said in Mark 7, verse 14 through 23, Paul is telling them that they're free from these things when he reads, Jesus says this. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he entered the house and left the people, excuse me, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then you are also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all 
foods clean. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, uh, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile the person, not the things that you eat and drink. Now, the fact is, we have a great freedom in Christ, but there's another principle we need to understand as Christians, and Paul presents that elsewhere, uh, and that is the principle of voluntary limitation of, of one's freedoms for, the te- for those who are weaker, that is, to have a tender conscience. In Romans chapter 14, and also in 1 Corinthians 8, in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and following, we find that uh, we're supposed to be careful that we don't hurt those who are weaker in their faith by exercising our freedom. Uh, that applies when Christians are asserting their liberty at all costs, that is, to the point to where it's hurting somebody who's weaker. Uh, you know, I, I told you earlier, I think, that I wouldn't wear this if I were back where I grew up, in Alabama, in Georgia. If I did that, it wouldn't make people think they weren't Christians, but it would, make, it would offend those who were different from me. And so I don't do things that make people feel uncomfortable. That's not wise. That's not what God wants us to do. That's not the circumstance here, though. Here the Colossians were being told they had to do certain things that Christ had not told them to do, that God had not told them to do. They were told to do, eat certain things and act certain ways in order to be Christian. It was the opposite of what this other teaching is. We're not supposed to offend people with our freedoms, but we are to realize that we are truly free from all kinds of things that are not part of trusting Jesus Christ. Your freedom is in one thing. It's in Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, His resurrection is why I have freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from my sin. Freedom to do what I want in Christ. If a Christian wishes to restrict himself in manner of food and drink or to set aside certain days for special observance or commemoration, that's fine. Those are good things uh, to be settled between your conscience and God. Concerning such questions, Paul writes in Romans 14, 5 and 6, Let each man be fully assured of his, of his own mind. One person that seems one day is better than another, while another seems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. But regarding all of these obligations, all, but regarding, excuse me, but regarding them as obligations is a step backward for a Christian to take. Don't do that. Why must Christians refuse to be judged in these matters? Because all these matters belong to a transitory order at best. In other words, it was a transitional time. <coughs> the legal prescriptions of days gone by 
were but a shadow of what's a substance in Jesus Christ together with the new regime of liberty and freedom which he has introduced. We are truly free in Christ. Trying to follow all those rules and rituals by the Gnostics and others like them was not only impossible, but at best they are simply a shadow of what is the most important, namely a relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, we are free in Christ. Not only are we free with respect to food and festivals, as we saw a while ago, but we're also free with regards with respect to asceticism and angel worship. In verses 18 and 19, Paul says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the body, whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is with from God. Asceticism, by the way, is serving as severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgences. So that's, asceticism is making life hard on yourself. And that's what he's saying don't do. Paul goes on to say, don't let anyone condemn you by a show of severe humility. That's a, asceticism carried too far is a way of showing that you're humble when you're really not. There are some who love to make a show of exceptional piety. There are others who are inclined to be taken in by them. They pretend they have found a way to a higher plane of spiritual experience as though they had been initiated into sacred mysteries which give them an infinite advantage over the uninitiated. They are only inflated by the pride of their own unspiritual minds, having lost contact with him who is the true head, namely Jesus Christ. You still see this in cults today. If you want to be a real and true Christian, they would say, then you must do and do, do and say what we do and say. You've got to be like us. Carries with it the idea of being humble as they define it. A self-conscious humility, not to mention an advertised humility, is in fact no humility at all. Only one could say, I am me and lowly in heart, without thereby denying the truth of his words. I don't normally like to use or even read poetry, but I really like this. Humility, the sweetest, loveliest flower that bloomed in Eden and the first that died, has rarely blossomed since on mortal soil. It is so frail, so delicate a thing. Tis gone if it be but look upon itself. And who ventures to esteem it his proves by that single thought he has it not. I couldn't find the author of that. And the reason I believe you couldn't find the author is because I don't believe he ever signed it. I think the author of that was humble enough to say what he said, which is the fact that if you claim to be humble, you're not humble. Only Jesus could ever claim and in fact be humble. Regarding angel worship, since there's no... Uh, it's not normally a part of Judaism at any point. It's likely that the warning regarding it here in Colossians is because there was a blending of Jewish legalism and Gnostic asceticism present here that included some kind of angel worship at that time. 
This self-infliction and pride in private religious experiences happens when the body does not maintain contact with the head. Every part of the body will function properly so long as it is under the control of the head. If it escapes from this control and begins to act independently, the consequences are disastrous. What it really meant here, what's really meant here, is that the false teachers, by failing to maintain contact with him, Jesus Christ, who is head of his body, the church, they have no true part in the body, since it is from Christ as the head that all the members of the body acquire their capacity to function with one another. In other words, instead of a superior Christianity, what they are teaching, in fact, is less than true Christianity. It's not Christianity at all. We are, in fact, again, free in Christ. Not only are we free with respect to food and, uh, and festival festivities, we're also free from asceticism and angel worship. But having died in Christ, we are free also from superficial regulations, we see in verses 20 down to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that are all perished as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an aspect of uh, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are above no value in stopping the indulgence of the the flesh. Having accepted Christ as Savior, we no longer believe there is anything we can do in the flesh or out of our own strength that is useful to our salvation. We are dead to any and all regulations that we might seek to attain in our own strength. As a matter of fact, the acceptance of any ascetic restrictions is of no value when it comes to a real struggle against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, any temptations, if you try to do anything in order to conflict or counteract your temptations, you're going to fail. In fact, this sternest asceticism can exist along with the insufferable spiritual pride, one of the subtlest and most intractable of the works of the flesh. The very doing of the activity itself can, can become a point of pride. Have you ever found yourself telling someone about a time when you were fasting, for instance, only to realize that the fact that you're telling them about it was a point of spiritual pride? I have, and it's very, very painful and embarrassing to realize. Consider for a minute the regulations which are being imposed by the false teachers. They're saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. These teachers are trying to make sure that these new Christians are dependent on them. And if you do all the things they say, they just change the rules. Now it's this you don't do. This is something else you don't do. So they want them to be dependent on them. They want to be important. And the fact is, Paul insists on the liberty of those of Christians in Christ. We have liberty. And we don't have to do all that stuff. These prohibitions carry with them a reputation 
uh, a reputation for wisdom because men are impressed with them, but there is no connection between them and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, a fake religion. For the Christian, this passage provides the means by which all religious rules, rituals, and regulations should be evaluated. The ultimate test is in terms of the kind of relationship with God they can nurture. Only those requirements that help one share spiritually in Christ's death and resurrection have any value whatsoever. The rest are worthless at best and lead to prideful worldliness at worst. We are free from sin in Christ Jesus. We have no reason, no, no value in trying to earn our salvation. We're free from that because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross and paid for our sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your freedom. Thank you that uh, we don't have to do things uh, that, uh, that would make us better. We do have to grow in you, and because of that, we want to do things and be more like you. But none of that has anything to do with our relationship to you. It has nothing to do with our salvation. Our salvation is total and complete by your work on the cross. All we do is accept that and trust you and what you've done for us. I pray this morning, Lord, that people realize that more than anything else. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.